Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture with you this morning and turn to Exodus 23. In a moment, I'll read verses 20 through 33. Exodus 23 is where we are this morning as we continue to work our way through the book of Exodus. And I'm reminded this morning and encouraged that we are not here to listen to the opinion of man. We're here to listen to what God has to say from his word. And his word comes with complete power and complete authority. And we come, in one sense, to reason with God. And I think that is sometimes scary for many people. Because when you reason with God, God is always right. (laughs) You want to have an argument with God? You want to discuss about what's right? God always says what is right and true. He's never wrong. And so when we come and when we reason with God, we have to admit we are not as smart as we thought we were. We were not as right as we thought we were. Because when we reason with God, we see him for who he is in his holiness and righteousness and perfection. And we see ourselves who we are, sinners, and we realize what we need, a Savior, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let us hear what God would have to say to us today. Would you stand with me as I read Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33? We stand because we respect God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. 
When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, and they shall not dwell in your land, lest, you make, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pursue you through your word, and yet more importantly, at the same time, you pursue us. We open your word and read it, O Lord, and yet your word reads us and shows us who we really are and what we really need in the light of your majestic holiness. And so shine upon our hearts today to make us more like Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What are the purposes of God's promises. What are the purposes of God's promises? Why does God give promises to people? In fact, some even categorize the whole Bible in reference to God's promises. So, they would say the Old Testament are promises made, and the New Testament our promises kept. Notice in this understanding, everything in the Bible orbits around the promises of God. So if the promises of God hold a prominent place in the storyline of Scripture, why does God give us promises? And what happens if we get that question wrong? How might we get the promises of God wrong? 
Or, even more damaging, how have we got the promises of God wrong? We get the promises of God wrong when we think the promises of God are all about making us feel good. If God's promises are merely about giving us goosebumps or chills, something is terribly wrong. If God's promises are acting like our therapist to make us feel something that we long to feel, to bring a smile to our face when we feel sad, or to maybe give us a good pep talk when we need to get going again, we've fallen short of the purposes of God's promises. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this point. We should feel something with God's promises. Absolutely. God has created us as beings with emotions and feelings. The danger is that we make our emotions the chief end of God's promises. Like that's all that they're supposed to do. And then God's promises are just about me. When God wrote his word, he was not sitting around thinking what might look good on a coffee mug. He wasn't thinking about what might fit on a magnet on your refrigerator. Fall into a trap if we merely think that God's promises are about making us feel good. God's promises also are not meant to be proof of the power of positive thinking. And if I just think these promises over and over and over again, everything in my life will be okay. Then my life will go the way that I want it to go. And sometimes we can view God's promises as a mantra. If I just say these promises over and over and over again, then I will get what I want. And how deadly and dangerous it is if we think that somehow we can turn God's promises back upon Him to manipulate Him to do what we sinfully want Him to do. Any promises that might fit in that category that sometimes we use? How about this? Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. What do you desire? I desire a husband or a wife or children or grandchildren. I desire more money. I desire comfort and ease. My heart desires and deserves more. God, you promised, it says right here, that you will give me the desires of my heart. And so we would then hang God's promises over his head like a tantruming child trying to get our own way. What's the problem? The problem is, is that we've never delighted in the Lord. We don't know what it is to delight in the Lord. We just want the end result. Give me the desires of my heart. What do you think happens when you delight yourself in the Lord? It fundamentally changes the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in the Lord, that then serves as the foundation and the fountain for the desires of your heart. 
delight yourself in the Lord. That's first and foremost. That is fundamental. That is everything. Perhaps another way we get it wrong is that we think God's promises make it so I can live however I want to live. That somehow we can go our own way, that we can live in sin, that we could rationalize our sin, that we could try to excuse our sin away. God's promises are not reasons why we can live irresponsibly, sluggish, wishy-washy, apathetic, lethargic, and hypocritical lives. Here is a major problem we have to face. God's promises are not for everyone. Does that sound harsh? God's promises are not for everyone, yet how many people want to claim God's promises? How many try to claim what's not rightfully theirs? How many prosperity teachers tell others to just name it and claim it? There's just one problem. How can those who don't know God claim God's promises? They can't. Or what about those who maybe do know God in a certain way? Romans says this, Romans 1, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to him. There was a knowledge. They knew that there was a creator who had made everything. His invisible power has been made manifest through his creation of the world. There is a sense where they knew him, but they did not know him. They did not worship him. They did not give him praise. Can they claim the promises of God? No way. What about this verse? Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Who is that promise for? All people everywhere? No, it's for those who love God. It's for those who have been called. That is, they have been effectively called by God and been saved. They have been called to faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are believers. They follow Jesus. They belong to him. They have given themselves to allegiance to him. They have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. Promises are important for the people of God, and we cannot treat them like a buffet line where we go through and just pick and choose the ones that we like the ones that are meaningful to us. In fact, that's another danger is that we look so closely at one promise or two promises that we miss that they are placed in the history of redemption. It's like staring at a tree when there is a glorious forest all around you and you've missed it. So what are the purposes of the promises of God? We've said how we can sometimes think wrongly about the promises of God, but how do we think rightly about the promises of God? 
and thinking rightly about the promises of God means we have to think about them according to the Bible. Does that sound weird? We have to think about the promises of God according to God's Word. What does God's Word say about them? And when we have God's promises and our understanding of them coming from God's word, we begin to think rightly about them and it is far more satisfying and desirable than trying to use God's promises merely to serve ourselves. The best thing about the promises of God is that the promises of God give us God. They actually connect us to God. Keep your finger in Exodus 23. We'll get there in a second. Turn over to 1 Peter. Or I'm sorry, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is glorious. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let that sink in for a minute. God's divine power has granted or given to us, we have received, what have we received? All things that pertain to life and godliness. What is it that you need? What do you need that God has not given to you? Keep going. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So he's granted, he's given something else. What is he given? Precious, very great promises. Why? What's the result? So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. God uses his precious and very great promises so that you can partake of his nature. What more do you want? God is opening up his nature. He's saying, here is my nature. You can share, you can partake of my divine nature and I'm giving that to you through my precious promises. So we receive his promises and we get God. Dear Christian, is that the daily reality of your life? That you are a partaker of God's divine nature and all the rest of the benefits of God's promises flow out from this truth. For God's promises sustain us. God's promises sanctify us. God's promises, God's promises give us life. Psalm 119.50 This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. And so we come to Exodus 23. This is the end of what's known as the Book of the Covenant. 
And it comes with a climax here at the end of these last verses that we read. The climax as we reach to these promises that God is giving. Remember, this is God speaking through his servant Moses to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. God is giving his promises to shape and to form and to ground his people in how they are supposed to live their lives. He's saying, I'm giving you these promises. And these promises are meant to mold you and form you into people who glorify me. And we see that in these verses. As God's giving his promises, there's also expectations and responsibilities that flow out of the people's hearts because of the promises that God has given. God's people are supposed to live a certain way. They are supposed to do certain things. And what's interesting is that God saying you have responsibility, there is a way that you are supposed to live that's meaningful. It doesn't diminish God's sovereignty or his control. In fact, it's actually meant to be a demonstration of his sovereignty and his control as expressed through the obedient lives of his people. Would you ever think of your life that way? That we serve a sovereign God and his sovereignty is seen in our obedient lives. God is so sovereign that it's reflected in how I live my life. So his sovereignty is seen through me, by those around me, in my community, in my life. So what can we learn from what the Lord has promised and what he expects from his people? Well, this is part two of this text. So a few weeks ago, we looked at number one. The Lord promises safe passage to the promised land. What a great promise he gave the Israelites. He would send his angel before them to guard them, to bring them to that promised land how we looked at how the Lord has promised the same thing for us and bringing us to our final rest and eternal home. Even as we remember that song, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. That's us as believers. We are not home yet. How busy are you trying to make a home here? How busy are you longing for happiness now? There's a better city that awaits us. A city who's the sovereign Lord. God will bring us there safely according to his good grace. And so we've already discussed how the Lord promises passage to the promised land, safe passage. Number two this morning, then the Lord expects exclusive worship. The Lord expects exclusive worship. We see that here in verses 24 through 26. 
You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. The word exclusive oftentimes has a negative connotation in our culture. From our youth, we are often told and taught to include people, not exclude people. We are told to be more inclusive and less exclusive. Oftentimes our world says, inclusive is loving, exclusive is mean and hateful. Some people even have an aversion to monogamy. to being with one man or one woman for their life in marriage. They say, it's too exclusive just to be with one man or one woman for the rest of my life. The thought of being exclusive terrifies them. And that thought, I would dare say, is becoming more and more prevalent among the way younger generations think. There are times to be inclusive. There are times to be exclusive But when it comes to our worship, it is to be exclusive. Our worship is to go to God and to God alone. That is, we worship the God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. We worship the God who created all things, the sovereign and almighty God who rules over all things, We worship the triune God, God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity. We worship our God who is a jealous God, a God who commands our worship, a God who says, me and me only will you worship and serve. And there is going to be this temptation for the Israelites. The angel of the Lord was going to bring them into the promised land. But that land would be filled with pagan people who worshipped other gods, who worshipped false gods. The Lord had just promised that he would blot out these people because of their sinful ways. But then he gives this command, do not bow down to their gods or serve them as they do. And he goes back to the very first commandment, doesn't he? He goes back to the very first word. You shall have no other gods before me. God alone is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped exclusively. You cannot worship the true God and some other so-called God. It doesn't work. Trying to worship God and some other God actually means you're not worshipping the true God at all. It's either exclusive worship of Him, which is what you were created for, or it's false worship. And Yahweh says to them here, don't do what they do. He knows their hearts. He knows our hearts. We are easily influenced and led away from the truth. We are easily deceived. We are quick to compromise. But God comes before them and God comes before us. And he says, don't imitate the pagan nations. And isn't that a resounding word that we need to hear today? Don't imitate the world.
Don't live like the world. Are you imitating the world? Are you thinking like the world thinks? Thinking only of earthly things? Thinking in only earthly ways? Considering only what is temporal, worshiping stuff rather than the giver of the stuff? Are you setting your affections on what the world loves? Are you loving like the world loves? Like the world tells you to love? Like the world defines love? Are you making decisions based on how the world makes decisions? Is it all about the bottom line? All about the money? All about your own comfort or ease? All about your own selfish pleasures? How many decisions do you make without considering God? How many decisions do you make without prayer? How am I spending my time? How am I spending up my money? Am I a living sacrifice? Look at Romans 12 real quick with me. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As the Apostle Paul has been unpacking the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ as he's been laying it out before the Romans in this precious book. He gets here to chapter 12 and he says, I appeal to you, I urge you, I'm pleading with you based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, based upon the truth of what I have just said, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, to die to yourself deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus Christ, which is your spiritual worship, or which is your logical worship, which is your reasonable worship, or what makes sense. All that God has done, everything that he has accomplished for your salvation, the only right response is to be a living sacrifice to God. And then what does he say? Do not be conformed to the world. It's this idea of like jello being poured into a mold when it's still in a liquid shape. And then it gels together. He says, do not pour yourself into the world to be conformed to the world's shape, to look like the world. Paul would not say that if that was not a temptation for us. But what? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds need to be renewed day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. Go back to Exodus 23 now and look at what it says. After warning them not to imitate the world, 25, you shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless you. What it says here, you shall serve the Lord your God. The idea behind that phrase there, the Lord your God, could also be the sovereign Lord. You shall serve the sovereign Lord. Serving the Lord is worshiping the Lord. And he is worthy of all of our worship because he is sovereign. And then what a great blessing that they receive don't they? I will bless your bread and your water. The things that you need to sustain your life, I will give you those. You don't have to worry about them. I will take sickness away from you. What a great blessing that is, isn't it? You will not miscarry or be barren in your land You're going to have many children, many kids running around. The days of your life will be long. What a blessing. What a blessing. I want to pull out something here because I think this is fascinating. Look at the end of verse 26. I will take sickness away from you. Very literally, that is, I will take sickness away from your inward parts. So let's remember that for a moment. I will take sickness away from your inward parts. And now go back to verse 21. Same chapter, 23-21. Talking about the angel here. I think it's the angel of the Lord. Or the angel who is Yahweh, who is the Lord. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in his inward parts. That's what it says. It's the same word there. When it says that my name is in him, it's in his inward parts. And now the Lord promises something. I will take sickness away from your inward parts. And I think... What the Lord is doing is he is setting up this dichotomy. My name is in him. It's in his inward parts. He is holy. He is just. He is divine. And he's contrasting that with his people. There's a sickness in your inward parts that needs to be removed. Isn't that a picture of our lives? That there is a sickness of sin that needs to be removed out of our hearts. God is never sick in his inward parts. We are desperately sick. Our heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. He tests the mind. He is the one who is able to remove sickness from our inward parts and what is the lord promising here with this great blessing upon the israelites he's promising and and saying that he will bless them with life 
But how much better as we think about the blessing of life on this side of the cross, this blessing of eternal life. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a better blessing than any temporal blessing you could ever know in this life. Number three, the Lord promises to drive out his enemies. The Lord promises to drive out his enemies. We know our God to be ascending God. Isaiah 6, the Lord asks, who shall I send? Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. We know God has sent his only son into the world through the incarnation. We know that Jesus appointed disciples who later would be called apostles, those who are sent out. Similarly here here in our text, we see that the Lord sends. It's first him sending his angel, right, in verse 20. I send an angel before you. But now, verses 27 and 28, I will send my terror. And then 28, I will send hornets. This is not a good sending. Rather, it's a sending of judgment upon the pagan people who are living in the promised land. First, look at what it says. They're sending terror. The Lord is sending terror upon those people. But notice what he says. He says, this is my terror. That is, the people will be terrified, but they will be terrified because of what the Lord has done and because of who the Lord is. With the presence of the Lord in the midst of his people, the pagan nations should rightly be terrified. In fact, when the spies go in and meet with Rahab in Jericho, do you remember what she says? That the people in Jericho, their hearts have melted away because they've heard of what Yahweh's done. They were rightly terrified. They are thrown then into confusion. That word confusion is the same word that's used for panic in Exodus 14, 24, when the Egyptian army was in the midst of the sea and they were riding their chariots. and All of a sudden, a panic came over them as the walls of the water came crashing down upon their heads in judgment. The sending of the terror of the Lord's presence is what secures their victory. All of their enemies will turn their backs. Literally, we could say that they will have them by their throats. How amazing is that? The Lord causes his enemies to be thrown into a panic, into confusion. But the Lord says something else in the next verse. He promises to send hornets before them to drive out the inhabitants of the land. What are these? There have been some suggestions about these hornets. Some suggest that's another reference to the angel of the Lord because it is in the singular. Some have suggested it's the Israelite army because the hornets 
are going before them, so maybe it's the Israelite army. Some have suggested it's foreign armies that will run out the people of the land before the Israelites reach them. Some have suggested it's literally hornets, insects, pestilence that went before them. Which we know could happen. Just look at the Egyptians and the plagues with the flies and the gnats. I think the point of emphasis here is that this is the Lord's judgment. The Lord judges his people through, or the Lord judges people through pestilence. And so this is no doubt God's judgment falling upon these pagan people. And then Yahweh does something a little odd, doesn't he? How does he do it? Look at verse 29. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. How is he going to do it? Next verse. Little by little. How do you think of God working? When you are at a crisis point in life, how do you want God to work? All at once. Do it all. Fix it. 100%. Make it happen. Make it go all the way. I don't have the patience. I don't have the wherewithal. We won't survive little by little. We can't take it if it's incremental. We are doomed if it is one step at a time. But God is working in this way for their benefit, for their good. It's for their safety in the long run and their prosperity. Can you trust the Lord if he works little by little in your life? Would we praise God for working little by little? Big, extraordinary is often what we want and desire, but small, insignificant, slow? Praise God for the little by little. What does Philippians 1, 6 say? He who began a good work in you will complete it all at once. It's not what it says. And I'm thankful that God doesn't complete it all at once because if he did, I'd be dead. I can't take it. But the Lord works in our lives in such a way, little by little, to get us precisely where he wants us to get us to be who he wants us to be, and even so, to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who is driving out these pagan people from the promised land? Well, in verse 30, notice it's Yahweh who is driving them out. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you. In verse 28, it was the hornets. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites. But then, look at what it says at the end of verse 31. And you shall drive them out. Who's driving out these people? Is it Yahweh? Is it the hornets? Is it the Israelites? What's the answer? Yes, it is. It's all of them. It's how the Lord works. God who is driving them out. They all have a part to play. Even the Israelites, 
in this promise of God. They are responsible to drive out the people as well. Does the Lord still do this? Yes. Is there any encouragement for us today? As we think about this promise, the Lord promises to drive out his enemies. Does that have any intersection with our lives? Well, I think it does. Put your finger there and go over to Mark 1. Mark 1. Do you remember a couple weeks ago as we looked at the Lord sending his angel or his messenger, we talked about Mark 1, the very beginning there. Again, the Lord sending his messenger, the final messenger being Jesus Christ himself. Well, what else happens here in Mark 1? Look at verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Interesting. He's taking away sickness. Heard that similar vein in Exodus 23. But this also idea here, and cast out many demons, could also be, he also drove out many demons. He was driving them out. He was driving out his enemies when he came to earth. Jesus Christ came and he is driving out his enemies. He's dispelling the darkness. He is coming to subdue those who are trying to overtake this world, Satan and his minions. What is Mark doing? I think Mark here is setting this up and saying Jesus is fulfilling the new exodus and the new conquest. Jesus is restoring righteousness, peace, and order to lives so they can live for him and worship God through him. Jesus now has complete power and control over his enemies. And he has even power over the most terrifying enemy. The last enemy that is to be destroyed, the last enemy is death. And the reckoning day is coming. And the reckoning day has already been secured because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What enemy will not be dealt with? What enemy will not be put in subjection under his feet? None. All of God's enemies are subdued, and we will reign with him forever and ever as more than conquerors. Number four. The Lord expects the removal of sources that lead to sin. The Lord expects the removal of sources that lead to sin. Verses 32 and 33, back in Exodus 20, 23. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Remember that God is making a covenant here with his people on Mount Sinai. A relationship. He's giving them this book that's meant to show them how to live in relationship with him, how to live in relationship with one another. And for them to make a covenant with the pagans would be a marriage that is unequally yoked. 
They can't find some middle ground. They can't bind themselves to these rebels who have been given over to their sin by God. They have to be removed and all of their gods have to be removed because any leftovers will be a snare to them. It will tempt them to sin. It will try to lure them away from the living God. Perish the thought. What a word. Do everything you can to eliminate and remove those things in your life that would lead you into sin or cause you to sin. Mark 9 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck that he were thrown into the sea. Do we see the same potential problem in our own lives? That there's a sense where The Bible's still calling us to remove sources that lead to sin. Get them out. Why don't we? Is it ever because we love our sin? Is it ever because it's too hard to remove those sources? It's easier just to let them remain. We are to be killing sin before it kills us. Sin is not something to be coddled or fed in our lives. It is a cancer to be cut out of our lives. Maybe your phone is a source of sin. Maybe your credit card is a source of sin. Maybe what you buy when you are by yourself in a grocery store is a sin. Maybe the people you hang out with cause you to sin. Maybe the environments you put yourself in cause you to sin. The grace of God has appeared teaching us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. A radical removal of those things that might cause you to sin. And maybe, maybe this last point, the Lord expects the removal of sources that lead to sin. Maybe you look at that today and that is actually an impossibility for you. You can't remove the sources in your life that lead to sin. You can't do it. And the reason why you can't do it is because the main source that leads to sin in your life is your heart. You need a new heart. You have right now a heart of stone. It's hard. It's impenetrable. 
You need to have that heart of stone removed and given a heart of flesh. But you can't do that. That's not your work. That's God's work. God removes hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh. And how does he do that? Well, he opens the eyes of blind sinners to see they are sinners. They begin to see that their sin is odious and ugly and detestable and they turn from their sin and they realize that their sin is what is keeping them from God. They cannot hold on to this sin and have a relationship with God that they need to be forgiven of this sin and they see that They are in need of someone to save them from their sin. And the only one who can save anyone from their sin is Jesus Christ and the work that he did upon the cross. It's there that he bore our sin in his body on that tree to do some major heart replacement, heart surgery. And now it's the fact that he died on the cross, was buried in a tomb for three days, and rose again from the dead on the third day. Announcing that he had made atonement for all who would believe in him. Atonement, perfect oneness with God for all who would believe and put their faith in him and say, Jesus Christ has done all the work that I need to be saved. I cast myself upon him. That is the promise of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be given a new heart. The Bible says that then you will have God's law written upon your heart. And then you will pray, God, shine the light of your holiness and your holy word upon my life and upon my heart. I lay it out here for you to shine on it to find any nook or cranny of any sin or any darkness in my heart that might need to be removed, that might need to be taken away so that I can repent of it, so that I can turn from it, that I can say, no, I'm not going to coddle that sin. I'm not going to feed that sin. I'm going to be done with that sin. It's going to be over. He gives us the grace and the strength to remove those for greater and greater lives that reflect his glory. Let's pray. Father, your promises are 
sure. And on them we rest secure. We will stand upon them. Lord, we need your promises because we need life. We need the promise of the gospel because we need life. Father, if there is someone here today who needs heart change, would you work in their heart today to draw them to yourself? Save them. There is someone here today who's wrestling and struggling with sin. They need to remove those sources that lead to sin in their life. That today would be that day. That maybe they would even find a brother and sister in whom they can confide. And they would say, help me. Come alongside me. Father, you've given us the community of the saints, the church, for our own perseverance and endurance and encouragement and accountability. As those who have been given new hearts, may our hearts be open to one another as they are open to you. Do a work in us today, I pray. Let us not speak with lusting lips of how we love your word and yet refuse to do your word. Let us not be hearers only, but doers that we might be blessed in our doing, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.